This morning, as we continue through Isaiah, we've been sort of going through the trust chronicles or trust lessons. And you might be tired of hearing about trusting in God, but it's really interesting that this whole section is Isaiah teaching how to trust God and all the nuances of trusting God and not trusting others. And the next week we get to the test because it's all looking forward to a time where God knew Hezekiah needed to trust God. And God in his graciousness is preparing Hezekiah for that moment. Just like with us, as we go through instances and circumstances that are hard to trust God as, as we are learning those things, all of those things are working together to help us learn to trust God. You know, sometimes we think of situations, okay, what does God want me to learn now? Sometimes God may be wanting you to learn something for the future. Someday he may know something that's going to happen in your future and know that he needs to prepare you. So what you're going through right now might be the process of preparing you. We can look at Isaiah and look at these 35 chapters so far and think, come on, you could have said trust God in one chapter. The thing is, the Holy Spirit didn't choose to do that because the Holy Spirit knows us. And the Holy Spirit knows that that is such a huge issue in our lives. Anyone struggle at some point this last week with trusting God? Anyone forget to ask Him for directions on a decision this week? Yeah, you see my point? The, the breadth of this topic is, is astounding. And, and we can say, yes, it's hard to trust God and we're thinking of one particular topic, but what has is, what is just blown me away is the breadth of it how pervasive the idea of trusting God is to life and how we miss it. Do I depend on God for every part of life? Am I seeking His direction? Am I trusting Him that He can handle it so I'm worry-free? And we have all kinds of tests of that this week. The elections. Tuesday. You're going to be faced with a question, do you trust God? Or are you going to worry about it? Are you going to get upset about it? Now today, during our Sunday school hour, we're going to spend some time praying for our country, for elections. And I encourage everyone to stay for that. This is such a vital response. Scripture says to pray for our leaders and pray for our countries. But do we trust God? Do you trust God even if the election doesn't go the way you think it should go? Now we're meddling a little bit. Now we're upset. Because I didn't win, or I didn't get what I wanted, or I didn't... Most of us, it's not so much about winning, but I I know what's best for the country, and that didn't happen, or that did happen. Think about even that statement. I know what's best for the country. And it's a challenge to do we trust God. Now, most of you are probably just sick and tired of all the election ads and things in the mail. I mean, I I look forward to seeing auto auto insurance commercials again. Um... (laughs) Even Geico, it'll be better. (laughs) Yeah, those are pretty good ones. But do we trust God even in situations where we don't have control? Even in situations where we have deep concerns and deep convictions? See, built into us, and and part of the issue of trusting God is, is God going to work the way I think he should work. And that's not trusting God, but that's how we work. We've been trained this from, from early on, right? Think about fairy tales for a minute. Fairy tale, what, what happens in fairy tales usually? There's a, a, a good guy and a, 
bad guy, right? And for a while, the bad guy seems to be winning. Hansel and Gretel are in the oven or whatever it is. And, and the, the bad guy seems to be winning, right? What's the end of the fairy tale? Happily ever after, the good guys win and they get theirs. But what else is at the end of most fairy tales? The bad guys get theirs too. What happened to the witch and Hansel and Gretel? Unless you have like a a sterilized little kid's version. She gets put in the oven, right? She, She gets hers. What happens to the wolf in Little Red Riding Hood? Chopped up, right? I mean... The, these are not pretty pictures. And, and at the end, this is what we've grown up with. We cheer. Why? Because we have this sense of justice. Evil gets punished. Good wins. And so we tend to look at small situations or, or short-term situations in that way. And we can say good didn't win. Evil didn't get punished. Proverbs has a lot to say about that. Psalms has a lot to say about that. Job has a lot to say about that. Because in the end, the question is, do we trust that God will do the right thing? Do we trust that he is just? And that will filter how we view any situation. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 33. Isaiah chapter 33. We're going to look at Isaiah 33 through 35. And these chapters really serve as a conclusion to his argument. We're nearing the day where God knew Hezekiah needed to trust him. A a crisis moment. And we're coming to that point. And we know all along that there's been failures in this, right? We we saw even before Hezekiah, Ahaz went and made an an alliance with Assyria. Didn't work out. Not so good. We saw the the desire to make an alliance with Babylon. We're going to see that again in a couple weeks as we're going to do a flashback. Not so good. They are an evil, godless nation. Last week... We saw Isaiah come to Hezekiah and say, don't go to Egypt. Don't. Don't even get on the camel. Don't even start it up. Don't go there. Because it's not trusting in God. And you remember last week, the challenge was, these plans are yours, not God's. In fact, you never even asked. And boy, that steps on my toes. He never even asked God. And so we have over and over and over again, a failure to trust. That's why we have 35 chapters on it. Because we do the same thing. And we struggle to trust because it's a, it's a battle between our natural man and God and who's going to be on the throne. And who's going to be in control. And so we come to these, ver- these chapters as a conclusion. And to give you sort of big picture of the chapter, 33 is going to be the conclusion in sort of the micro sense, the current situation. And then Isaiah is going to use the current situation as a jumping off point for 34 and 35 to say, let's remember the bigger picture. Let's remember the end. And we, we saw this a month or two ago, and we, we, I stood over here, and we had two ends. He's going to do the same thing again because we always need to see how is God working here, but how is God working here? And if we forget either one of those, it's difficult to trust God. So we come to 33, and this is the the near term. This is the Assyrians. And in in verse 1, it starts, Ah, you destroyer, who yourself have been destroyed, you traitor, whom none has betrayed. When you have ceased to destroy, you will be destroyed. And when you have finished betraying, then they, they will betray you. Clear as can be, right? 
You all know this, the situation. You all know the country. No, this is why Isaiah and prophecy is sometimes hard because we have to do the work to understand it. And so I want to give you some of the historical background. I, I sort of gave you this sketch of, of Hezekiah's failures to this point. But do you remember what Assyria was doing? Assyria had, had a new king and a new general, and they're reasserting their influence. And they're coming along and starting to take out countries again. Assyria was brutal, just straight up brutal. And Sennacherib is the guy coming down, leading the army down. And, and at this point, some of the countries, along with Babylon, it looks like, had said, oh, there's a change of leadership in Assyria. Now's the time to start stop paying them our taxes, our tribute, because they won't do anything about it. Oh, were they wrong? Oh, were they wrong? And so Hezekiah was one of those ones that stopped paying tribute to Assyria. And so Assyria gets the army together and they're like, this isn't going to happen. We have to squelch this rebellion as brutally and bloodily, bloodily as we can. So he's coming down through the north and he's already taken out the, the northern tribes, going through Philistia. And now he's coming to Judah and he's starting to work his way through Judah, if you remember the history, city by city, destroying and killing. City by city. And it's just working it through until they're at the last guardian city of Jerusalem. There was these valleys and, and you took out the guardian cities first and then you went to, to Jerusalem and they were at the last one, a city called Lachish. And they took out Lachish and I talked about that. They built a siege ramp and, and took out a, a, what seemed like an impenetrable city. And Sennacherib is there. And, and the background to this verse and, and what we have to understand, that's why he's called the destroyer. Ah, you destroyer, who have not, you have not been destroyed. No one's been able to take you out. You traitor. And we're like, okay, what does that mean? Well, we know from 2 Kings 18, and you can read that on your own sometime, we know that Hezekiah is watching this happen, and he says, okay, Assyria is doing this because we didn't pay them tribute, right? You have to understand, these, these were real people, real situations, real political intrigue, not just today, this for all of history. And so Hezekiah, he goes to the temple, and he takes gold out of the temple treasuries. He strips gold off the doors. He loots the temple and sends as much money he can to Sennacherib in, in Lachish. What's he thinking? I'm going to pay him off. God said not to make alliances with other countries. Didn't say anything about paying people off with his money. Do you see the issue here? And Hezekiah is desperate. And you see a pattern of desperation. And we do crazy things when we're desperate, don't we? We can justify sin. We can do all kinds of things. I, I, I can remember when I was little, and, and don't ever do this, but I, I, I enjoyed animals. And so my neighbor's cat, who, who wasn't real friendly, was in our backyard sleeping there. And so I figured, you know what? I'm going to make friends. I'm going to sneak up on this cat. And I'm going to grab it. And it is going to be my friend. I was ignorantly foolish. So I snuck up on the cat, grabbed it, and I wasn't going to let it go. Well, this cat had not been declawed. And when an animal is desperate and feels cornered, it will do the craziest things. And this cat just bloodied me from head to toe, up and down the arms, my chest, my face, cat was going to get away. That's a little bit of the picture that I think we have Hezekiah right now. He's backed in a corner. 
The army's coming. He's in the last city standing. He is, he is desperate. Because I don't think anyone five years earlier would say, hey, it's a good idea. Let's go loot the temple, God's church, or God's dwelling place at the time. Let's go loot the temple and give the money to a godless nation. But he was willing to do it at this point because he saw no other options. See, trusting God isn't just when we, we, we see how God can work out. Trusting in God is also when we see no other options. When we see no way that God can work. And God just chuckles. He says, watch me. And so that's the setting here. And, and Isaiah is probably sharing this. He's probably giving this message as the, the armies of Sennacherib are coming to Jerusalem. Possibly as they're at the door and they're already in siege mode. And he comes to Hezekiah and he says this. And what's interesting is there's prophecy here because he tells Hezekiah what's going to happen if he trusts God. It hasn't happened yet. But he's trying to re- reaffirm and reassure. All that for verse 1, right? Three chapters. Here we go. That's the background that we need to understand. Verse 2 then goes on. And, and your, your points and your notes, God will be exalted in Judah's situation by delivering his people from the Assyrians. This is the near term, the current situation. God will be exalted in Judah's situation by delivering his people from the Assyrians. If we break it up in an outline, for me it's helpful at Isaiah to see an outline. One through six is salvation will come when God's people wait on him. Salvation will come when God's people wait on him. That's God's desire. Verse two, O Lord, and this looks like finally the prayer that God wanted. O Lord, O Yahweh, be gracious to us. We wait for you. Be our arm every morning, our salvation in the time of trouble. And finally, finally, we see an acknowledgement of need for God. An acknowledgement that He will be their strength. That's be our arm is this idea of strength. And, and there's some liturgy there. And, and we're going to try this this morning because it looks like the, the leader would often say, be our arm every morning. And the people would say our salvation in time of trouble. So you see those two phrases? And it was something that was repeated back and forth to remind themselves. And so I want to do this this morning. This side, I want you guys to say, be our arm every morning. And this side, say our salvation in time of trouble. Okay, wait till they're done though. We'll, we'll do it like that, okay? So this side, what are you guys saying? Be our arm every morning. Okay, so here we go. Be our arm every morning. Salvation in time of trouble. Isn't that cool to remind each other of that? And that's that's what liturgies are great for. Is we're reminding ourselves of God. We're reminding ourselves of who He is. And so salvation comes when people wait for Him. The idea of wait is the idea of trusting actively. Trusting while obeying. And so they're saying, we trust you. We obey you. Be our strength. Be our salvation. They finally get it right. What's interesting to me is this is pleasing to God. And this is happening after they've really messed everything up. This is happening after they've, they've tried to make alliances with other people. They've tried to buy off the Assyrians. Incidentally, Sennacherib took the money, said okay, and then proceeded to march to, march to Jerusalem and kill people. That's what the betrayal is. The traitor 
in verse 1. That God is assuring them it will work out. And so they trust Him. And that gives me comfort, though, because there's really nothing I can do to mess up God's plans. I can't get so far from God that He can't reach out and draw me back to Himself. Hezekiah wasn't able to get so far from God, even with dumb decisions. And God was still saying, turn to me. I am your strength. I am your salvation. Oh, that's so encouraging. And so as these three chapters are concluding all of this, we're going to see judgment and encouragement, judgment and encouragement, because it's the fairy tale. The bad guys are going to get theirs. God's people are going to get theirs. And so verse 2 is the prayer. Verse 3 through 6 really goes on to the basis for that prayer. Who is God? How does He work? And the, the basis is His character. Listen to this. At the tumultuous noise, people flee. When you lift yourself up, nations are scattered. The idea is all you have to do is get out of your chair and poof, everyone's gone. It, it's a statement of how great and majestic God is. Isn't that beautiful? God just has to twitch, move, get up. Nations are scattered. Your spoil is gathered as the caterpillar gathers. As locusts leap, it is leapt upon. And he's using this idea. Locusts would destroy everything. And he's saying, God, your, your power is so pervasive that it's like the locusts just wipe everything out. The Lord is exalted in five. He dwells on high. He will fill Zion with justice and righteousness He will be the stability or the firm foundation of your times. Of the abundance of salvation, wisdom, and knowledge, the fear of the Lord is Zion's treasure. Isn't that a beautiful description of God? This is why they could pray, you are our arm, our strength, and our salvation. Their hope, their trust is based on the character of God. A couple weeks ago we talked about we all trust, but, but what we trust in is what defines whether it's good trust. Here we see God's character. Why can we trust God? Because He's exalted. He dwells on high. He's a God of justice, a God of righteousness. He will be stability, your firm foundation. He will bring salvation, an abundance of salvation. He is a God of wisdom and knowledge And that should lead to a fear of the Lord. Who God is, His character, ensures His promises. And that allows us to trust Him. It demands that we trust Him. It's why I I, I just firmly believe if, if you're having trust issues, if you're struggling with believing God is at work, if you're struggling with worry, go back to the character of God. That's what Isaiah does. If you're highlighting, almost all of those verses are yellow right there. This is the character of God. The firm foundation that will not fall. God then goes on in in verses 7 through 12. And this is a section where God acts and is exalted in the crisis of helplessness. God acts and is exalted in the crisis of helplessness. And He's still just intervening in their situation because God cares about our situations. Verse 7, Behold, the heroes cry in the streets. The envoys of peace weep bitterly. And what he's talking about here is he's talking about Judah. He's saying your soldiers, your heroes, they are crying because they are helpless. Assyria is coming. We're going to die. Let's cry. 
So that's sort of what's going on here. The envoys, these are the people that were sent to Sennacherib with the treasures of the temple to buy off Sennacherib and say, hey, don't attack us. Here's lots of money. And they're weeping because Sennacherib's coming and they're going to die. It goes on to talk about just the desperateness of their situation. The highways lie waste. The traveler ceases. Covenants are broken. The covenant with the Assyrians. Cities are despised. There is no regard for man. The land mourns and languishes. Lebanon is confounded and withers away. Sharon is like a desert. And Bashan and Carmel shake off their leaves. Those are all places that were actually fertile places in Israel, spread out throughout the land, usually surrounded by desert. And and he's using this as an illustration that the land is just completely devastated. The people are devastated. Invasion has ruined the country. Just a little side note when you're reading prophecy, especially in Isaiah. We're going to see this later. We saw it last week. Um, Isaiah often does things in fours. And numbers meant something in prophetic and apocalyptic literature. The number four often meant completeness. So like when we see the, the, the four horsemen in the, of the apocalypse, the, the four horsemen of Revelation, that was a complete judgment on the earth. And so four, four was often this idea. So when we see four cities like this, Lebanon, Sharon, Bashan, and Carmel, Isaiah is saying your whole land is, is devastated. They're in a helpless situation. And so we'd think there's no hope. Just curl up into a fetal position and we're done. But verse 10. But verse 10. And we see the word now repeated three times because he's saying now, he's he's for emphasis, now I will arise, says, says Yahweh. Now I will lift myself up. Now I will be exalted. And and he was waiting for finally an idea of helplessness, of stopping to try to do it ourselves, stopping stopping to think that we didn't need God, and to just throw ourselves at his feet and say, God, we need you, we have nothing else. And God says, now, now I can work. Now I can be exalted. Because if, if, if we're not in a helpless state and it's solved, we, we, we love taking glory. We love taking credit. And there's probably Cubs fans taking credit for their win because we love taking credit. And God says, but when you're helpless, you can't. Now I'm exalted. I will lift myself up to act. I will arise. And he, he, he pushes that further, probably talking about Assyria in 11 and 12. Some think maybe Judah, but, but probably context Assyria. You conceive chaff. You give birth to stubble. Your breath is a fire that will consume you. The idea meaning you give birth and it's to nothing. It, it, it's worthless. So Assyria, all that might you have, all the, the cities you took over, all the greatness you think you are, nothing. Worthless. In a moment, I'm going to destroy you. And we'll see. We'll see who is powerful. And the peoples will be burned, will, will, will be as burned as if burned to lime, like thorns cut down that are burned in fire. Oh, there's some huge, huge lessons there. God acts and is exalted when we are helpless. But we fight helplessness. We don't want to go there because it feels so helpless. Sort of the obvious statement of the day. And sometimes by not 
getting to that point, we delay God's work. Think about that. Trust requires helplessness. Chapter 33 goes on. Let her see there. Be confident that Yahweh will deliver the righteous to the new Zion. Be confident that Yahweh will deliver, not me, Yahweh will deliver the righteous to the new Zion. And here it's, it's interesting because now he, he starts to mix language. He's using the language of the current Assyrians and he starts to mix in the future. And you're going to see that because some of these things were like, okay, that's a perfect king and that's Zion. That's, that's a perfect um, kingdom later. So he's, he's, he's using the current to teach the future. One, one, one way of wording that is he goes from the particular to the general. And, and God often does that. He takes a current situation to teach us a much bigger principle. And we see here, you who are far off in verse 13, what I have done. And you who are near, acknowledge my might. So he's inviting people to come and see that he is exalted. He's the one doing this. The sinners in Zion are afraid. Trembling has seized the godless. And here's a sign of their helplessness, a sign of their prayer. Who among us can dwell with the consuming fire? Who among us can dwell with everlasting burnings? We're sinners. How can, how can we even stand in the, the face of God? It's Isaiah falling down on his face and saying, Woe is me! And God answers. Verse 15. He who walks righteously and speaks uprightly who despises the gain of oppressions, who shakes his hands lest they hold a bribe, who stops his ears from hearing of the bloodshed and shuts his eyes from looking on evil, he will dwell on the heights. His place of defense will be the fortresses of rocks. His bread will be given him. His water will be sure. Your eyes will behold the king in his beauty. They will see a land that stretches afar. And we see the language turn eternal here. That God says, who can? The one who walks righteously, who lives an upright life. The one who speaks uprightly, the one that watches his tongue, what he says, and how he says it. The one who despises the gains of oppression, the one that has integrity in money, in finances, who shakes his hands lest they hold a bribe. A one who hates sin, who stops his ears from hearing of bloodshed, who shuts his eyes from looking on evil. That's the one that can stand and be in the presence of God and will be rewarded by God. Now where Isaiah is going to go a little bit in these chapters and later in the book is who of us can say we do all those things? None of us. None of us are perfect. Anyone acted completely in integrity your whole life and never even slipped once? Anyone ever held your tongue so completely that you never said something you regretted your whole life? Or this week? Or this morning? So this is what God desires. But the beauty of this, and we're going to see it a little bit in chapter 35, is that because of the Messiah, because of Jesus Christ, we can stand this way and be seen this way by God. Not because I'm righteous, Not with a glory of my own, but because He is righteous and He has exchanged my sin for His righteousness. And I don't deserve that. 
And if I just give myself to Jesus, he says, here, take my, my coat of righteousness. That's how God's going to view you. I'll pay for your sin on the cross. Let's make that deal. Okay. And man, if you've never given your heart to Jesus and said, forgive my sins, oh, today's the day. Because he goes on to describe this, this new kingdom a little bit, a little taste, a little window. Your eyes will behold the king in his beauty. They will see a land that stretches afar. Your heart will muse on the terror. You'll look back on the bad times and say, okay, where is he who counted? Where is he who weighed the tribute? Where is he who counted the towers? And he's using some illustrations there. Where's the guy that took our taxes? Where's the guy that took our money? Where's the guy that had the the huge encampments and, and fortifications? If we had to put it in our terms, where are the people I was so worried about? Why was I worried about them? Have you ever looked back at a situation that God has worked in and you're like, why was I even concerned? God worked it out. For God's people, that's what life's going to be like. We're going to look back and say, God had it all along. I was pretty silly. You will see no more insolent people. The people of an obscure speech, speaking of the Syrians, the foreigners, that you cannot comprehend, stammering in a tongue that you cannot understand, they're gone. Behold Zion, the city of our appointed feasts. Your eyes will see Jerusalem, an untroubled habitation, an immovable tent whose stakes will never be plucked up, nor will any of its cords be broken. But there the Lord in majesty will be for us. Oh, what a marvelous phrase. Yahweh in majesty will be for us. If I have to choose anyone that's for me, let's go with God. If we are his people and turn to him. He goes on and talks about no warships are able to come. Verse 22, though, is a marvelous verse about God again and his character. All of this is based in God and his character and his work. He is the hero of this story. For the Lord is our judge. The Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord is our king. He will save us. And that had to ring true for the the Israelites because they had judges that failed them. They had kings that failed them. Most of their kings failed them. They had Moses, the lawgiver, and he died. But they could look forward to a true king, one that would save them. goes on to talk a little bit about what's going to happen to Assyria, that God will take them out. But the curse is undone. Verse 24, And no inhabitant will say, I am sick. The people who dwell there will be forgiven for their iniquity. See, the heart of chapter 33 is in the current situation. And trust God. Throw yourself helplessly at His feet and He will work. But in the end, it's that He will forgive. He doesn't work because you're good enough. He doesn't help us because somehow you've earned His favor. He helps us Because He loves us and died on the cross to offer us forgiveness. From there, the next two chapters go back to the big picture. So that's the the local setting. And and Isaiah wants Hezekiah to learn, trust God, throw yourself helplessly at His feet, watch what happens, you're going to be amazed. And it's a sign that God is going to work through all eternity. He will work now, He will work in the future. And so 34, he goes, in 35, he goes to the future. 
Point number two, those that oppose God will get their due. Any cheering? Those that oppose God will get their due. Have you ever been in a movie, a lot of the popular movies, especially if you go like opening weekend, places crowded, right? And, and people are cheering. If you, do, if you go see Star Wars, I, people, you know, the, the opening scroll comes on and the place just goes, ah, and it erupts. And you're like, quiet, I'm trying to read, which is sort of weird. But, um, and, and, and there's this excitement. Now, what happened, like, like in episode one, what happened when, when Darth Maul finally got his? Because I saw that one opening night. Darth Maul finally got his. The place erupts in cheers. It was pretty gross. The place erupted in cheers. Why? Because we know that evil should get its due. We want to see God work. And we have all these little human ways of of celebrating that, of seeing that. But on the grand scheme of things, this is what happens. Those that oppose God will get their due. And this is the final judgment of the godless nations. 34. Draw near, O nations, to hear and give attention, O peoples. Let the earth hear and all that fills it, the world and all that comes from it. And verses 1 through 4 here just give a a summary of what God's going to do to the evil nations. And sorry if there's kids in here. It's God's word. For the Lord is enraged against all the nations and furious against all their hosts. He has devoted them to destruction. Same word that we, we learned about in Joshua, harem, that they, they are devoted to destruction. They've made their choice and now they're going to get the consequences for it. He has given them over for slaughter. Their slain will be cast out. The stench of their corpses shall rise. The mountains shall flow with their blood. You want an action movie? Here's one. All the host of heaven shall rot away. The skies roll up like a scroll. All their hosts shall fall as leaves fall from the vine, like leaves falling from the fig tree. And he's reminding them it's not going to be pretty, but evil will be be judged. Evil will get its due. There's all kinds of, of ideas of where this is. Probably the two major ones that could be in the tribulation. This could be the second half of the tribulation when God is judging the earth. More than likely, though, it's, it's the battle of Armageddon right at the end of the tribulation, right before the millennium, where God takes all nations that are opposed to him and boom, they get their due. And this is not because God is, is cruel. He has given all this time for us to turn to Him and for nations to turn to Him. This is because the nations have chosen to spit in God's face and to not turn to Him and to not follow Him. And they're getting the consequences for their actions. Verse 4, where it says, All the hosts of heaven shall rot away. It's not just the nations on earth. All of creation is going to be under God's judgment. The skies roll up like a scroll. Their host shall fall as, as leaves from the vine. It's this idea that He created all things. He can do away with all things like that. It's a reminder that the Creator is God, not the created. I, I think of times, well, I, I've probably never wanted to say this, where to my kids I say, I brought you into this world. And I can take you out of this world. It's true of God. You and I, we really can't take our kids out of this world. All kinds of problems. God can end this world. He created it. And if it's in defiance to Him, He will judge it. 
And this is sobering because if you and I are in defiance of him, if we never give our hearts to him, if we never choose to follow Jesus, we're in this category. This is our chapter. This is our future. He goes on and it looks like he's being specific, but he's actually using a, a country that is often used to refer to all evil nations, Edom, the country of Edom. And so in verse 5, he says, For my sword has drunk its fill in the heavens. Behold, it descends for judgment upon Edom, upon the evil I have de- the people I have devoted to destruction. The Lord has a sword. It is sated with blood. It is gorged with fat, the blood of lambs and goats, and the fat of kidneys of rams. For the Lord has a sacrifice in Basra, a great slaughter in the land of Edom. Just a brief history of Edom. We can spend a long time on this, but Edom was just to the east and south uh, of Judah in the desert there. And Edom were the descendants of Esau. Remember Esau? Jacob's brother. They were related to Judah. And from day one with Jacob and Esau, there was fighting between the two. There was enmity between the two. They never got along. And you can think, well, my, me and my brother never got along. This is, this is far more than that. Because they became a perpetual enemy of Israel. Remember when Israel was coming to the promised land? They came to Edom and said, can we go through? We'll even pay for the water. And they said, no. We are going to stop you. And the battle erupted. Remember I said Hezekiah decided not to pay Assyria tribute? Edom saw that, and so they sent money to Assyria. Hey, our neighbors, they're not. We still love you. It's a despicable act. In fact, they grew strong under Assyria. 115 years later, when Babylon was coming and destroying Jerusalem, it looks like Edom helped. At the least, they cheered for the fall of Jerusalem. In Psalm 137.7, we, we read, Remember, Yahweh, against the Edomites, the day of Jerusalem, how they said, lay it bare, lay it bare, down to its foundations. And so God uses Edom as an illustration for all nations that oppose him. And in verse 6, the idea there is that they become their own sacrifice for sin. In Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. Sin against an infinite God requires a, a penalty of, of corresponding value, and that's death. And that was the promise at the Garden of Eden. If you eat this, you will surely die. Speaking of spiritual death and then physical death being brought into creation. And so the payment for sin is death. And we know that Jesus Christ is our sacrifice. If we turn to him and accept him, and we're going to be celebrating this in a moment, Jesus was our sacrifice. He died for us because that was the payment that had to happen. Somebody had to do it. So think about the logic here. The godless nations never turn to Christ, never accept his sacrifice. The penalty for sin is still death. That's the imagery that's in verse 6 there. You didn't take my sacrifice, so now you will be sacrificed. You will be your own sacrifice for your sin. And he goes on to describe this lasting judgment, the earth just torn apart in judgment, the godless nations completely brought under God's control. And it's a reminder that in the end, God will judge evil. Evil only looks like it wins for a time. 
but God will judge evil. And there's comfort in that. We see that in Revelation. The martyred saints are saying, how long, how long, O Lord? And God says, it'll happen. There's comfort in that, as odd as that sounds. There's also a lesson there. That we don't have to be the ones that take revenge for our Edoms, for the, the evil in the world. You and I are not responsible for judging every act of evil. Now, government, we can talk about government roles, but I'm, I'm talking individually here. Guy cuts you off. You don't have to be the one to teach him a lesson. As much as I say that sometimes. <laughs> Someone wrongs you in business. You don't have to be the one to make sure they pay their due. Someone says an angry word to you, offhanded in the morning. You don't have to be the one that holds the grudge all day and tears them to shreds in gossip with your circle of friends after church. God's got it. God's the one. Trusting God means leaving those things for Him. Romans 12 says, don't take revenge. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. It's not your place. But there sure is a comfort to know that God will take care of it. And we end with chapter 35, just 10 verses before we come to communion. But a beautiful description about the other side of things. So 34 is comfort for the righteous because God will deal with sin. It's fear for the godless. Chapter 35 is just wonder and excitement for the righteous. Point number three, get excited about the everlasting joy God has for those he has redeemed. Get excited about the everlasting joy God has for those he has redeemed. I've talked about this before. Do you ever think about heaven? Do you ever just think about how awesome it will be? How different it will be? Get excited about it. This is God's gift to us. And we read this here. He starts with the healing of creation. The wilderness and the dry land will be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. And here's the the four cities again. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it. The majesty of Carmel and Sharon. Sorry, only three this time. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. He's talking about that creation will be redeemed. We see that in Paul's writing in Romans chapter 8, verse 19. He says, For creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it, in hope that creation itself would be set free from bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Oh, it's going to be awesome. Next two verses talk about the confidence of everlasting life should encourage us and take away our worry now. And, and so he's, he's saying, strengthen the weak hands. Use this as encouragement. Strengthen the weak hands. Make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, those that are worried, say to them, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. He'll take care of the bad guys. With the recompense of God, he will come and save you. See, when we think about heaven, that should encourage us. It should take away the worry. Because we know God is just. We know He loves us. We know His promises are sure. 
if I'm just terribly worried about life now, I'm struggling to see what life will be. I'm struggling to see how God will work. I would argue I'm questioning whether God will work. He will. Verses 5 to 10 go on to talk about just how incredible this is. This is where the sets of four come back in. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped, the lame man leap like a deer, the tongue of the mute sing for joy, for waters break forth in the wilderness, streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool, the thirsty ground springs of water. And you have a couple sets of four there that talk about physical renewal and physical healing. They talk about more renewal of the land. And then he goes on. In the haunt of jackals where they lie down, the grass will become reeds and rushes. Creation will be marvelously changed. But will also be spiritually renewed. In verse 8, a highway shall be there. It shall be called the way of holiness. Ever feel like you don't do what you should? Like Paul said? Like you struggle? We're going to be on a way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they will not go astray. I love that. Even if we want to blow it, because we're now under the, the authority of the true king, he will hold us firm. It's not me. It's him that holds my salvation. No lion shall be there, nor, the, nor shall any ravenous beast come up on it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. And then verse 10, and this is what I put in for, for memorizing this week. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. The ultimate end is God wants joy for us. He wants to bless us. He wants us to be in His presence. This is where His plan is going. And that plan doesn't change Tuesday. It doesn't change with any other circumstances you're going through. This is where His plan is going. If we follow Him, we are destined for joy and singing, gladness, no sorrow, sighing will be gone. Isn't that marvelous? Isn't that encouraging? Ah, we get so focused on the present. And God knows that. This is why He's given us 35 chapters on trusting Him. He knows that we live in the present. He knows that we hurt. He knows that this is a fallen world. And we are having to deal with it. And so He says, look at the end. Look at what I'm doing. Trust me. And so we come to the end of these 35 chapters uh, with the introduction, 30 chapters on trust. And we're faced with the question, who do we trust? Do we trust alliances? Do we trust friendships? Do we trust our, our money? Do we trust large savings accounts? Do I trust my intellect? Because I'm really smart and can make really good decisions. Not compared to God. Do we trust our organizational skills and our scheduling skills to keep life ordered and perfect so that way nothing bad will ever happen to me? Let me know how that goes. Or do we trust in a God 
who will use a fallen world to execute his perfect and good plan and bring us into joy and eternity with him. And who will execute his perfect and just plan and bring evil under his subjection. I said, I said earlier, God is the hero here. He is the one that judges evil. He's the one that creates a future for us. He is the one that pursues us when we're in sin and draws us to himself and saves us. Praise God. Praise God. What can we learn about God? I've mentioned all these, so I'll I'll just list them. God hates sin and will not let sin go unpunished. He won't. So if you're sitting here today and you're saying, I, I'm getting away with my sin, that's pretty fun. God hates sin and he will not let it go unpunished. God will be glorified. And finally, he wants us to have a joy with him in glorious eternity. He wants good things for his children. He wants joy. We fight him, we mess it up, we want our way but trust that God is at work. We want to end today with communion together. And, if, and this, is, this is a great way to end because when we think of God's salvation, when we think of why we can trust Him, this is the foundation. Because we can't save ourselves. We can't answer the problems of this world on our own. We have to trust that God is at work. And at that moment of time when, when He sent His Son Jesus, incarnated in the flesh to die on the cross for our sins, God intervened and said, this is the moment in time where I'm proving that evil will be judged and conquered, and I'm proving that I will give you eternal life. This is the moment that all of history hinges on. And so today we eat eat the cracker and we eat the juice, and there's nothing magical about those. But they represent God's intervention in human history. They represent that we can trust him with our lives because the cracker represents his body that became the sacrifice for our sins, willingly given up to death on the cross when he could have stopped it like that. The juice represents his blood that was spilled instead of mine. Oh, that gives me chills. And when we drink it, it's remembering this was his blood, not mine. And the godless nations are going to have to spill their own blood. And so by taking it, it's an act of trust together. An act of saying, I give you my life. I want to end by, or, or I want to go into this portion by reading Psalm 24. It's very similar to a passage we read. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart who does not lift up his soul to what is false and who does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of salvation. This is why we can have clean hands and pure hearts. It's the only way. So let's praise him and remember his sacrifice. Thank you, God, for a gift we could never repay for a future we could never even hope to dream of that is secure in you. We look forward to it. We live in light of it. We trust you because of it. In Jesus' name, amen.